got to take care of the floors, you know, the floors of the forests, very important. You look at other countries where they do it differently, and, and it's a whole different story. I was with the president of Finland, and he said, we have uh, a much different, we're a forest nation. He called it a forest nation. And they spend a lot of time on raking and cleaning and doing things, and they don't have any problem. And when it is, it's a very small problem. McRaven has been critical of the president, saying his attacks on the media threaten our democracy. I do believe that the investigation has absolutely every right to subpoena the president to sit down and answer these questions. Uh, the Supreme Court has ruled twice now on civil matters, and we'd assume a criminal matter has a greater emphasis. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the man who has contempt for veterans, the late war hero John McCain, active military personnel, war widows and gold star families, desperate children at the border, journalists including Jim Acosta, Abby Phillip, April Ryan, and tortured and dismembered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, towns and states and nations that have been devastated by fire or flood, families of people killed in massacres, mothers, Europe, the principles of Christianity, black women, black men, all people of color and minority religions, the Pope, the many women who have credibly charged him with sexual harassment and abuse, Christine Blasey Ford, anyone who dares to investigate his crime syndicate, including Robert Mueller and Adam Schiff, and of course, his closest circle, senior White House officials, his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, his son, Barron, whom he ignores entirely, and his son, Don Jr., who he seems likely to cut off like a starfish arm, his wife, Melania, whom he ritually humiliates with his affairs when she was pregnant and a new mother, to say nothing of his open contempt for her since he's become president. Today, we can add students to that list. Trump's latest move is just sickening. The backstory is that in 2007, a law took effect that said, if you work in public service and make student payments on time for 10 years, you'd get your loan forgiven. So last year in 2017, the first wave of people who'd been working in public service and making payments meticulously for a full decade became eligible to have their loans forgiven. But Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and Trump have proposed eliminating public service loan forgiveness from the 2019 budget. And they're already denying the eligible. Less than 1% of people who've applied for public service loan forgiveness have actually gotten it. And the claims of others have been slow walked or denied on technicalities. This is crazy making for the people who've been working for 10 years at public service salaries, teaching school, working in nonprofits, only to find they've been lied to and are bankrupt without loan forgiveness. It's official. The promises of this country, the promises made to its taxpayers, every last one of them, are in jeopardy or have already been broken. My guest today is Eli Stokels. Eli is a White House reporter for the LA Times and a political analyst for MSNBC. He's covered the evolution of the GOP presidential campaign from Bush to Trump and has reported on Trump and his administration ever since. I'll be back with Eli in just a minute, but first... Mitch McConnell has been blocking any attempt to bring legislation to the floor to protect special counsel Robert Mueller. And he's just released a statement that explains his perfect reasoning. Hi, I'm Mitch McConnell, and I wanted to release this statement to explain why I don't support legislation protecting special counsel Robert Mueller. As I've said many times, I simply do not believe there's cause for such a bill at this time. 
Now, Angus King, the junior senator from Maine, said that this is tantamount to saying you don't need a fire department until your house is on fire. Now, I think that makes good sense, too. Until your house is ablaze, how do you know you need a fire department? To illustrate my reasoning, I've prepared a list of other things that I, Mitch McConnell, believe you do not need. Ahem. You do not need a flu vaccine until you have the flu. How else do you know you need it? You do not need vitamin C until you have scurvy. You do not need a seatbelt until you're in a car crash. Seatbelts are uncomfortable, fair constricted. Even if you look ahead and see that you're heading straight for the median, you still do not need to buckle up. After all, it could be a mirage. Maybe you're driving in the desert. It's just good sense. You do not need to RSVP for a wedding until you're at the wedding. If this makes the bride and groom upset, that's on them. Make them seat you anyways and demand a dinner option that's not on the menu. They'll enjoy the challenge. You do not need to turn the lights on until you've bumped your knee on the dresser. You do not need to lock your door until there's a thief inside your house. You do not need to pick up Legos until you've stepped on one. You do not need a harness until you're tumbling down a mountain. You do not need a prophylactic until you're with child. For then and only then are you certain that you're fertile. You do not need to brush your teeth until you have gingivitis. Even then you do not need to brush your teeth until you have periodontal disease. Even then you do not need to brush your teeth, because then all your teeth may fall out, and then hey, the problem is fixed yourself. And finally, you do not need health insurance until... Well, actually, you just do not need health insurance. I firmly believe that no one needs nor deserves health insurance. Thank you very much for your time. Eli, hello, and welcome to Trumpcast. Hey, good to be with you. So... I really like it when there's sort of a guilty pleasure when uh, Washington journalists do pieces that check in on President Trump's stormy moods. But sometimes I feel like I'm reading them like the child of some kind of abusive parent whose moods you know, are going to affect me in every way. And I have to be sure he's not going to come over and hit me or something. What Am I alone in feeling that way? I don't think so. I mean, that's how we feel oftentimes trying to report and write these pieces. They, they just seem so ridiculous, uh, especially... You know, as we get close to the two-year mark of this presidency, we've written so many times that he's raging, that he's upset, Mm -hmm. that it seems like doing so and focusing on his moods, him being so reactive, that's kind of not much of a value add for readers at at various points because we know that he's mercurial and up and down and that he lashes out at people. But I think you also, as a reporter covering this White House— it's different than any other West Wing environment that we've really seen probably ever— And I think because this presidency is so much driven by the whims and moods of this one individual, a lot of that coverage does tend to be warranted at the end of the day because you can figure out where he's going, whether it's with personnel or policy, oftentimes based on the kind of steam he's letting off on Twitter, the things he's saying Mm -hmm. at the rope line, and the things that we're picking up by trying to report out what he's saying in private. Yeah. So the other thing that uh, this piece came out November 13th. So there was speculation that his retreat into, as you, as you say, a cocoon of bitterness and resentment, which was different from raging. I mean, there's something about that cocoon that seems like he's imprisoned in his mind. But there was speculation last week, and we did it too, that that meant indictments were coming, that he'd been tipped off, that the House was absolutely certainly going to get his tax returns. 
I mean, in trying to read the tea leaves, we predict events that sometimes don't come to pass. You did not do that in this piece, which was noble. You held back. But what do you think we can make of the fact that he was out of sight for many days, including important days with this Asia conference, and the fact that he is sounding so cut, you know, we're out of words for unhinged. He's just sounding so Trump. Yeah, a couple of things. So to go back to the period that we described as, you know, him being in this cocoon of bitterness and resentment, um, yeah. you know, you go back to the days after the election. He had the press conference Wednesday uh, at the White House, known now as the Acosta press conference. But, you know, that was yes. the day after when I think he was feeling okay about the results. That was before a lot of these House races slid from leaning Republican to won by Democrats and the margins, at least on the House side, got a lot worse for them, as well as the Arizona Senate seat. So I think in the days as he went overseas to France for the centennial of the armistice to end World War One, he was not just getting accustomed to the reality of what it would mean to have a Democratic House and the likelihood, uh, almost yeah. certainty of investigations into his tax returns and to any, any number of other matters. It's a long list. It is. It is. I would be scared, too. So that eventuality, I think, weighs on him. I think the Mueller probe weighs on him. And there is a sense that, you know, the White House lawyers have been saying for a long time that this is nearing the end stage. There's debate about that. Mueller may have more to do. But we saw with the president getting rid of Sessions the day after the midterms that clearly that's on his mind. And so yes. there's anxiety about that. There's frustration about not just the Democratic House and what that's going to mean for him over the next two years. But I also think there was not just fear, but a lot of frustration. The election results were sort of shattering, I think. You know, from what I've picked up, this is a guy who, in 2016, all the polls said he was going to lose. Mm -hmm. Access Hollywood tape comes out. He goes back out there, and instead of apologizing, he doubles down. He attacks, mm -hmm. he torches Bill Clinton about the womanizing and the adultery. He makes the, the mm -hmm. closing message even more negative. He leans in even harder to, if I lose, this is going to be rigged. I mean, we described mm -hmm. him as sort of spiraling out of control in the closing days of 2016, and he ended up winning. And so I think you yeah. fast forward to 2018, we saw something similar. We saw a, a guy who leaned in even more and harder to the politics of fear, to stirring up hysteria about the caravan. I think in his mind, yeah, he'd had the politics shop telling him for weeks, if not months, that, hey, look, this election could be pretty difficult. The Democrats look like they're going to win the House. We should focus on the Senate. But prepare yourself for losses. I think in his head, this is a president who felt sort of impervious to political gravity and felt like, mm. you know, I have this unique ability to drive a message, to control the media, to stir people up. And it works for me and it's going to work again. You know, Steve Bannon referred to 2018 midterms as the first reelect. Hmm. The president was out there for weeks at rallies saying, you got to pretend I'm on the ballot. And so I think yeah. as he took stock of the composite picture that came into focus of an election that was across the board, a huge defeat, not just in these individual races, but, you know, to see Republicans wipe out in the three states that were more critical to him in 2016 than any other, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. To see where Republican candidates stood now, two years into his yeah. presidency, you know, even for somebody who's pretty good at selecting their own alt-reality, this was not something that he could pretend not to see. Yeah. You know, when he's deciding, I'm not getting out of bed, I'm not going to, the, to Arlington on Veterans Day to lay a wreath, don't want to do that. Not going to try too hard to get to this ceremonial thing in France to march with the other world leaders down the Champs-Élysées. A lot of that was just his frustration and, and just feeling isolated and alone and worried from what I've picked up. 
Yeah, you do something in this piece, and I'm referring to this one about his mood. The LA Times, which I also write for, always has these long headlines. But in any case, it's Trump stung by midterms and nervous about Mueller retreats from traditional presidential duties. There is something that was a bit of a breakthrough for me here. We always wonder if he says the opposite of what he says in public in private, that if there is a part of him that knows that he's in some reality distortion when he talks at the rallies, there's something very satisfying in this piece where you say your sources say that he is, in fact, disappointed or more by the midterm results. Yeah, I mean, one person close to him said, you know, look, losing is not good for his brand. That's not good for his brand. And these were losses. He understands that. And it's hard to make these declarative statements about Trump and Trumpism sometimes because it's often very self-contradictory. And he does a lot of these things where at times you believe that he really doesn't know that he's lying. He really does convince himself of these things. And there are other times where you really do get a sense from talking to him in an off-the-record conversation, perhaps, or, or from talking to aides, that it's kind of a wink and a nod. He knows what he's doing. This is a mm-hmm. message. This is, you know, he knows he's inciting, trying to get a reaction, trying to do something yeah. that he thinks will help him in a campaign. But, you know, he knows that the caravan is not really a threat, right? Mm-hmm. So it can be difficult to interpret his actions and behavior sometimes because they don't always follow a consistent pattern. And rhetorically, when he talks, he often leaves himself a little trapdoor to get out, he'll say something about, uh, you know, well, you know, we're going to we're going to have a red wave. But of course, you know, like, we'll see. Maybe we won't. I don't know. You know, he's always kind of yeah. back and forth feeling his way across the river by just sort of feeling the stones. And there's that improvisational yeah. aspect to his rhetoric and to his presidency. But I think this is a case, you know, I think you're right, that he understood in the days after the election that his rhetoric did not work. You made a small but I think kind of brilliant point on Twitter about Trump's misstatement in his visit to California. He called Paradise California Pleasure California initially and then went to correct himself. I mean, it seems like such a small thing, but usually when a person corrects themselves, especially about a place name, which is, a you know, would have been a very serious gaffe, especially a place suffering from tragedy. You can imagine another politician or another president saying, pleasure and then something like excuse me and being taken aback i'm so sorry i'm tired of course i mean paradise tell me what the president said and what you made of that small slip well i wasn't traveling with him on saturday but yeah watching the video it seemed like there was a group of aides to the various politicians to the governor and incoming governor in california about you know and perhaps presidential aides and people just traveling with them so when the president was talking to the cameras and he kept he referred to it twice as pleasure you could hear the second time people kind of correcting him and saying, paradise, paradise. And instead of, like you say, recognizing that that's an important distinction, his response, I believe, was, or paradise, or paradise, as if either either name were fine. And that obviously is missing the point. Exactly. And that's so similar to what you said about we might win or we might not. One of the things that frustrates people about this president being unable to do the basic presidential duties, going and laying a wreath at Arlington, that's the sort of photo op that is a layup for any president to go and sort of look like a president without having to do a whole lot, right? And he couldn't even sort of get himself to leave the White House and drive last Monday two miles across the Potomac to do that. These things that are these moments where you expect the president to be consoler in chief We've just seen so many examples where he struggles in these moments after tragedies to play that role, whether it was shooting paper towels as if they were free throws into the crowd in Puerto Rico, or in this case, going to California 
getting the name of the town wrong, and also repeating this trope that he says in every photo op at every disaster site that he's visited, which is, this is like nothing we've ever seen. Nobody could have predicted this. This is so incredible. And California has had a lot of fires. People there, mm-hmm. this is not a shock to them. Just as the you know ferocity of these storms coming out of the Gulf and the Atlantic year after year after year, these storms are not all that surprising to people. And so I think there's just a superficiality sometimes to his approach and to his understanding, really, of some of these events. And also, you know, getting the town name wrong obviously speaks to sort of just a indifference almost to the suffering and to the reality on the ground that the president hasn't even taken the time to absorb the name of the community. Do you think that, I mean, the guess, our guess, or or my guess, is that he, with each one of these tragedies, wants to see what's in it for him. With the gun tragedies, he makes it about the Second Amendment, and he also feels like there is some insult to his worldview that he has to somehow compensate for, that he's he's losing when there's a massacre because he's so aligned with the gun crowd. And then with climate disasters like the one in California, he also feels like he's losing and he's going to be asked the inevitable questions about whether he's changed his mind on climate change, and he has not. So to say this was completely unpredicted, we never could have seen something like this happen, is another way of saying, I still don't accept climate change. Right. And to come up with these sort of bizarre and wrong explanations. I mean, he said, we're going to have good climate. I mean, what does that even mean? He's talking about Finland and the fact that in Finland, they rake the dead leaves and trees and clear the forests. And that's, I mean, there are people in Finland posting videos, mocking Trump, showing themselves out raking because it just made no sense. A lot of these situations, he has to say something and he doesn't necessarily know. He may have a sense that his side is in the wrong. And so he just goes out and says something and kind of makes things worse for him when he's out there just saying these ridiculous things about climate change. You know, it just doesn't make him look very well informed, but he can't just sort of sit there and quietly not absorb it because he's kind of vamping his way through every rally, every speech, every press conference, and also every on-the-ground visit after one of these disasters. And this is one of these cases where generally, as president, if you want to send the right message, you're going to be a little better served by taking the time to read through the briefing book and be a little more introspective about this. And that's just not something he does. I want to go back to the profound point in this piece and that you just made again, that his twin fears, I don't know if you agree with me, but they're related fears of the Mueller investigation and then of losing or being seen to lose. And I think they're closely related. I don't know if you remember, but around Helsinki, Julia Yaffe said, we don't have to look any further for compromise. We know what Putin knows about Trump, which is that he didn't fairly win the election, that he was illegitimately elected because he had a massive assist from a foreign power. Mueller knows the truth of that, whatever it is. And the elections, like this House election and the midterms, which were not, we're told, so much assisted by Russia, that Russia didn't interfere as much in this election as they did in 2016, that he knows when he gets a referendum on himself that makes it look like his country doesn't love him. There were 60 million Democrats who turned out. Nate Silver said we've ignored that number. 
And that's an enormous number. It was something like 45 million Republican voters who turned out in 2010, which was the last time you had a pushback from the opposition party. So 60 million is an extraordinary number. And he feels himself to be losing in the midterms. When he doesn't get help from Russia, he loses. That could be a fear of his. And Mueller will soon find out. I mean, do you agree with that? I think that's a pretty coherent description between what you've said and what Julia Yaffe said about his existential fears. Right. And I think his behavior towards Russia and now towards Saudi Arabia, sort of this absurd credulity and willingness to give the benefit of the doubt to those countries in the face of overwhelming evidence against them on various matters, the the murder of Khashoggi and uh, obviously the election meddling and to dismiss the conclusions of his own government, the, the intelligence community here in both cases, and to just continue to make excuses for them. You know, you have to step back from that and say, both countries must have some sort of compromise or some there has to be some reason why he just refuses to be tough as he wants to project to China and to Japan and to Mexico and Canada and to the NATO allies. Why is he so different to those countries? There has to be some reason for it. I think we may find out that that's tied up in what Mueller has been investigating. Those may be financial relationships going back well before the presidency. We don't know those answers just yet, but his behavior certainly does give us an indication that there has to be some reason why he just cannot react to that situation like you would expect a normal American president to react. And I think as far as the election goes, there may be an awareness that he has galvanized Democrats and that he has galvanized independence against him in a way that is going to make his life really difficult in the run up to the 2020 presidential election. But, you know, I, I don't know if he fully grasps that last Wednesday at the White House when he was reading his statement before he started taking questions at that press conference the day after the election, he was mocking a number of Republican moderates for refusing to campaign with him and blaming that factor for their losses. One of them, Mia Love in in Utah, appears now that she will hold on and win. But these others, Mike Kaufman in Colorado, I mean, they lost because of Trump. They distanced Mm -hmm. themselves. They had their own brands, and it did not matter. Mike Kaufman's race was called 10 minutes after the polls closed in Colorado. And, you know, I just think that you're obviously right that the number of Democrats who voted that's a staggering number. And if the election look if the, if the electorate looks like that in 2020, especially in those states I mentioned earlier that were key to Trump mm-hmm. breaking through the blue wall, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, it's almost game over if he can't fix that or find another place to, you know, the, seeing races so close in Georgia, seeing Democrats win a statewide race in Arizona, seeing the Texas Senate race within three points. And granted, mm-hmm. there was a, a unique candidate on the Democratic side who was able to take advantage and make that race so close. But all of these signs are signs that point to, you know, the tailwind blowing in the Democratic direction and the president running into a a pretty strong headwind over the next two years. So you report from the White House to the L.A. Times. And I know from friends in California that the fires are everybody's fifth talking point or 10th talking point here. And obviously, they're number one in California. Some people noted Trump lost Orange County in the midterms, Orange County containing the hometown of Richard Nixon, being Republican stronghold for a long time, being Reagan country. And he seems at least 
Some of the statements from the fires are from people saying, oh, well, this did it for me. Trump let us down. Do you think California in any way, at least the Republican parts of California, are substantially changing? I definitely do. I mean, I grew up in Irvine. So that's California's 45th district and one of the districts that flipped. And I can tell you when I was growing up, it was a predominantly, you know, white suburb university town. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, over the years, it's really changed. There are a lot of immigrant populations that have moved in there. The supermarket now is a Persian supermarket near my house. There are mm-hmm. temples that are populated mostly by immigrants from South Africa. There are entire shopping centers where you can get everything you could possibly want imported from China and Hong Kong and incredible food. And that's just the changing nature of this community. So in a way, mm-hmm. Orange County as a whole, I think, has been changing and demographics have a lot to do with it. But these races a lot of them at the end were really close. And I think that they don't all swing Democratic last Tuesday, if not for a lot of these leaners deciding to go Democratic. And that's to vote for progressive candidates like Katie Porter and more moderate yep. candidates like Harley Ruda. It was less about the individual Democratic candidate, it seems like, and more about sending a message and changing party affiliation for the representative in Congress as a reaction to Trump. I mean, in the in the weeks before the election, not only was he stirring up the fears about the caravan, but we had that violence. We had the pipe bombs, and then we had the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. I think there are a lot of voters out there. It, it's hard to really put your finger on this, but you know, when people that the president has made rhetorical targets are suddenly being targeted with pipe bombs, when somebody who shoots up a synagogue is galvanized by the same anti-immigrant rhetoric that you see the president delivering night after night Mm -hmm. after night on the rally stage, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. people step back from that. And I think a lot of people had a response. And if they were leaning, you know, it's hard to know. Exit polls are pretty insufficient. I haven't been out there and talked to a ton of people. So I make no claims to know this based on any actual reporting that I've done. But I can just tell you, you, you look at all these races and you look at the margins and you have to conclude that these races were decided late and the late deciders Mm -hmm. all broke one way. Hmm. Obviously, some of these stories are heartening to see sort of reality asserting itself against Trump's distortion of it, even if it's not a real move to progressiveness, just something that says we're not going to stand for this anymore, the destruction of institutions or the assault on institutions represented by the president. At the same time, I don't know if you've listened to Leon Nafok's great show on on Slate, just to quickly plug it, the one about Watergate. The first season of Slow Burn was about Watergate. And he really spells out that it is very, very difficult to change party affiliation or go against your party. And that's for the rank and file and for those in Congress. We've seen Jeff Flake dither finally taking a stand against some of these federal judges. And I mean, it seems you have to move heaven and earth to change people's parties. I keep thinking in 2016, if Jill Stein had been the Democratic nominee and I was choosing between her and Marco Rubio, I still would have had a hard time voting for Marco Rubio. So I do think we have to give it up for some of these Republicans, especially in red districts who bit the bullet and voted for a Democrat this time. I think it's a really fascinating moment in the culture that Trump is able to has, has been able to dislodge people from their party affiliations in some cases. Yeah, in, in both ways. I mean, he's brought in Democrats, longtime Democrats in, in more rural industrial areas mostly white voters who voted Democrat for a long time, either because of union affiliation or or another factor, but have identified less with a a diversifying uh, and increasingly progressive party. 
And on mm-hmm. the other side, you know, you you have seen a lot of sort of country club Republicans. Education is often the dividing line. I read in a in a Politico piece that the head of, of one of the Republican House super PACs basically said, you tell me the education level in a district and I will be able to tell you if Republicans are going to hold that district. And that is just now, you know, Trump has sort of realigned American politics and it is much more a reflection of how people identify. It's driven much more, it seems like, by education level. That is a divide that we've seen and economic opportunity. And, and, you know, you're just seeing the sort of realignment of the political map based on how people are reacting to Trump and his politics. Okay, very direct question. We lost Jeff Sessions to unemployment. We gained Matt Whitaker, who I think only Trump thinks is a plausible AG. He's in the Roy Cohn slot. Trump's hoping he'll be a pit bull or a guard dog for him. Do you think we'll see other staffers out soon, like John Kelly or Nielsen? Yeah, I think it's inevitable that we will before the end of the year. I just think it's it's hard to predict exactly who will be first. Nielsen is certainly in the president's sights. He has tangled with her. You know, she has the misfortune job-wise of overseeing immigration. That's the one area where the president really feels like that's the issue that ties him to his base. He's going to micromanage that a lot more. He's going to be much more focused on the public perceptions around that issue. He's got Stephen Miller in his ear telling him these numbers are bad. If there are more border crossings or more apprehensions, that's an excuse to do this policy or that policy. And she has to go out and execute it And I think when Kelly brought her in, look, he vouched for her. Kelly was going to be the savior. Everything was great. Trump didn't ask Mm -hmm. any questions about her. Now, when he talks to people, she's a bushy. She's not to be trusted, nor Mm -hmm. is Kelly. You know, that could happen at any moment. But also, you have an interior secretary who's facing a, a DOJ investigation and a number of ethics probes at interior. You have a press shop that's exhausted. I mean, you have all kinds Mm -hmm. of possibilities for people who may eventually decide on their own time to go in a different direction, leave the administration. And and then the, there are all kinds of personnel problems at the cabinet level. And it's really sort of a triage situation for the president. I think they want to avoid a situation with Ryan Zinke being the subject of a bunch of investigations next year when the Democrats take over the House. But mm-hmm. does he does he have to walk the plank first or does the president want to get rid of Nielsen and make himself feel better and then put the pressure on Kelly? And And, and who does he replace John Kelly with? There are two sort of rival factions in the White House behind Nick Ayers, the vice president's chief of staff, who would like the job, mm-hmm. and Mick Mulvaney, the OMB director, who would also like the job. And there are people close to the president on both sides of this telling him this should be the person, or if that's the person, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. As much as he wants to blame other people in, in the West Wing and in his cabinet for various things and make changes, he often struggles to make these decisive to make a decision at the end because he gets caught between these factions, doesn't really know what to do. And someone joked last week, you know, what's he going to do with John Kelly? John Kelly is the one who, when Trump fires someone, he makes Kelly pick up the phone and call them because he doesn't want to do it himself. (laughs) So perhaps that makes it harder to get rid of John Kelly. (laughs) Or he can just take to Twitter. I mean, he can do that from his phone. I suppose so. All right. The job description for the new chief of staff, do you think it has some, they have to be able to work with 
the resistance within the administration that we learned about from that anonymous op-ed, those of us who don't have access to the the many senior officials, it seems like, believe that they're there saving the republic from the president. Trump seems to have blown past that anxiety that his court is working against him. And or do you think someone that he brings in like Ayers is meant to weed out the rats? I just can't understand this. If it's a Pence person, it seems very much like he's going to keep the status quo. Yeah, I mean, this is a president who reportedly has been talking to people about whether he should make a change and put somebody else on the ticket in 2020 uh, rather than Mike Pence, because there are people who he thinks might have more appeal and maybe it's something new. I, you know, so I don't I don't know if putting a Pence person in as chief of staff is uh, there to sort of protect Pence. It's always hard to know what everyone's motivations are. And it's hard. It's, it's really hard to believe that anybody who is taking that job is going into it thinking that they can really make the West Wing work better or get the president on task or, you know, as Kelly did, thinking he could control the information that the president was seeing. I mean, that's just impossible. This is a president who's not yeah. going to be managed or restrained and who, you know, there's so much reverse engineering of policy that comes after the president tweets or says something in an interview and the, mm-hmm. the White House gets asked about it and they say, oh, you know, we're actually doing that. And then they have to scurry and actually set up a group to study that or they have to get an executive order drawn up or something. It's just a really difficult situation to manage. I think it, in, a, in a way it's the prestige of it that draws these people and I think the, the thirst for, for power and control. But it's not a really mm-hmm. – it's not a control where you can manage up and change the president. It's controlling the rest of the West Wing and managing down and certainly whoever moves into that chief of staff role if and when that happens – there's a new one. It's really going to affect the personnel throughout the West Wing, perhaps more than it's going to make a change in the sort of day-to-day operations and what we see from this president. All right. Very last question. Do you think he's losing veterans thanks to sitting out Arlington, thanks to his dismissive, even contemptuous behavior at the armistice celebration in Europe and in the deployment of these, what is it, 8,500 military personnel to the border to defend against ragtag asylum seekers and putting them there in tents over Thanksgiving? It just seems very hard for any military family to think that he's on their side. Yeah, and I'll I'll give you another one. The Fox News Sunday interview with Chris Wallace trashing Bill McRaven and saying because McRaven has criticized him and his behavior and said that he supported Clinton in the last election, Trump trashing him and saying, you know, it would have been nice to get bin Laden a whole lot sooner. And I think, look, the McRavens of the world, the Mike Haydens, these Republican-leaning or Republican generals, he's lost them a long time ago because of Mm -hmm. the disregard for small d democracy for the process for behavioral norms protocol discipline is something i also hear discipline right military complaining about you know just from the start you just don't get the sense he makes his bed or you know does calisthenics any morning you know that <laughs> the kind of retired generals are usually proponents of i don't know the answer to this question i think that it's amazing that this isn't more of a scandal the president deploying, you know, that number of troops that a cost of maybe $200 million to taxpayers down to the border to string chicken wire in what is clearly a stunt that was drawn up to perhaps blunt the election losses for Republicans. The fact that that is just something that is happening and not drawing more of an outcry is remarkable to me and, and really an indication of sort of where we are. But in terms of veterans individually, I don't know that these actions, one of them or the whole 
gamut of all of these behaviors over the years, the snafu when he tried to call the Gold Star parents. I mean, all these things, I don't know that they are really affecting how pro-Trump vets feel about Trump. I mean, I, I was at a rally in Iowa in October, and I talked to a guy, a Vietnam vet, in line, and he was almost brought to tears talking about how much he appreciated President Trump. And 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 it was, you know, this is a guy who came back after Vietnam and had people disparaging him, spitting on him, he said. And he said that he, he was just moved by how Trump stands up for veterans and appreciates veterans. And so maybe to a lot of people, the president's rhetoric about loving the vets and appreciating the vets rings hollow when you look at them alongside all of these other behaviors. But I do think that he has a pretty strong bond because of that rhetoric, because of certain actions, because of things like politicizing the NFL protests and talking about the flag. Those things may be superficial to a lot of people, but to a lot of vets, they are meaningful. And so I don't know that Mm. these sorts of behaviors in the last weeks or months are really doing him a ton of damage with vets on the whole. I guess we'll see. Eli Stokels is a White House reporter for the LA Times and a political analyst for MSNBC. Eli, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And that's it for today's show. Let us know what you think. We're here on Twitter. I'm at page 88. And the show is always at Real Trumpcast. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. Asher Perlman performed today's sketch. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.